Welcome back to On the Shoulders of Giants, interviews with luminaries in retina. Today, we have part two of our interview with Dr. Kirk Paco. You know, I, that nothing embodies that more than AEO subspecialty day. And I think we can credit you with being the founder of AEO subspecialty day. In 93, you started to do uh, was it a pre-meeting before Academy focused right. on retina? Yeah. And that eventually evolved into subspecialty day. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. It was in, in 1992. Um, the Academy was going to be in Chicago. There was a pre-meeting uh, a couple of years before that. It was the person who came up with the idea of doing a pre-Academy meeting was Travis Meredith, who Travis was my mentor uh, uh, in fellowship. And I owe Travis uh, with a lot, uh, not only uh, how to, to do vitreous surgery, but just how to be a good doctor and a good person. Uh, but this was Travis's idea, and he did it. Um, and I uh, anticipating that there would be maybe two or three hundred people that would show up, and he uh, did it in Buckhead, uh, north of, uh, of Atlanta, and uh, had to it was turning people away. He just couldn't fit the people in the room. He, he finally squeezed about 500 people in the room, uh, but there was another 500 that wanted to be there. And the, the beauty was financially is he didn't have to pay the way of all these doctors. He just had to ask them to come a day early uh, for it, but they were flying in for the academy anyway. Uh, and so he had about 15 uh, faculty that he was able to put on there and not have to pay, uh, although I think he gave him an honorarium to speak. Um, and then uh, 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 Joe Olk and Hillel Lewis did it for two years after that too. And Hillel uh, uh, picked it up and, and added a lot more people to it. And then again, you know, in me, like the Retina Times magazine, I felt, well, let's go for broke on this one. So, um, I added an exhibit floor again, uh, and uh, it, it looked exactly like the exhibit floor at the academy. There was numbers on each aisle. I had about 50 exhibitors, um, and they were anxious to be there because it was very uh, efficient for them to get in front of all their, their consumers, their consumer base. Um, and I had 90 faculty. Um, and uh, 1,100 people uh, come. The, uh, I raised uh, just under a million dollars in corporate support in 1992. And I was in the black, $1,400. Oh my gosh, it was that close. It was that close. And uh, my course co-director was my senior partner, Dave Orth. Uh, David was popping nitroglycerin tablets. <laughs> That you couldn't believe. And he knew me. I mean, I was his partner, right? And he knew I like to spend, I like to think out of the box, and I wanted to do things in a big way. And uh, and he was saying, Kirk, you don't need a hologram on the top on the outside of your syllabus. You don't need that. And I go, Yeah, we do. This the the whole meeting was uh, uh, it's called New Dimensions in Retina, and it was all stereoscopic. And, uh, you know, those were the days of slides and we, we did the stereo viewers, right? When we did things. So I said, well, let's half the, the presentations were presented in stereo. Um, 
we also now we have you know things like ingenuity and other uh, companies that do the heads up 3d surgery uh you know which is 25 years later but uh in, back then there was a, a a surgical 3d system too it was made by uh, uh zeiss and uh we uh, uh got the cameras uh called medilive from zeiss it was analog systems and big tube te televisions, not uh, the flat screens hadn't even been invented yet. But we, uh, um, we sent the cameras around to surgeons who had a particular procedure that they were doing. Uh, macular hole surgery was brand new. Um, and so uh, Bert Glazer was doing some with uh, TGF beta, that was his kick. Submacular surgery, brand new. Uh, so Matt Thomas was t taking out some neovascular membranes in stereo. Uh, uh, translocation surgery, brand new, all these kinds of things. So I, I sent the, the, uh, the cameras to the different uh, sur surgeons a year before the meeting. Uh, they sent me all their raw tapes because I had to edit everything because I had to edit it in stereo. And I had these very expensive uh, glasses that were $1,000 a pair uh, to, to view in stereo. And uh, I'll tell you as an aside, I got such a big kick out of uh, seeing the, the, the raw footage from beginning to end, not just the, the 30 seconds that you're going to show, because I learned things like how people, like why Gene Dewan opened his conjunctiva the way he did, I couldn't understand, um, or just the little things uh, I, I learned so much from. Um, uh, but anyway, so I, I we was so then we presented all this uh, in stereo. Um, we had a stereo theater with these very expensive glasses. We had thirty pairs at a thousand dollars a pair uh, set up for that. I had to buy a special silver screen to maintain the polarization in the main projection room, um, which cost me uh, sixty thousand dollars just for the screen, which I had to buy. Um, and uh, no one could rent this thing to me. Um, so basically that's why I spent close to a million dollars. My audio vi visual budget was, was uh, uh, over $400,000 just for AV because of us. We had to triple project our, our projectors to get enough light uh, to get it bright because of the polarization on it. And then the rest of it, I gave back to the people. And that's why let's put a hologram on the, on the cover. Let's, we had a, a wonderful gala dinner at the Shedd Aquarium and we showed uh, uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon in the original 3D version from 1956. Uh, so we made the poster, uh, the retina that ate my brain and the t-shirt and stuff. So people had a great time. And uh, two years ago, uh, a person comes up before the pandemic, a person comes up to me. Uh, I was doing a, a presentation at the academy and after the symposium was done, this guy chases me down, he was from Brazil. And uh, he said, no, Dr. Paco, please, 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 a minute. And he said, the last time I was in Chicago was at your meeting, this stereo meeting. And he even uh, showed me a letter that I had sent him, dated 1992, um, thanking him for registering. <laughs> it was a handwritten, hand-signed letter. Thank you for, for coming to the meeting in another three months from now. And uh, he was so impressed with the meeting, he kept this letter. So it was just fun, fun to see that. But so everybody re regarded this meeting as this huge success that 25 years later, people were still chasing me down uh, to, to thank me for it. But the person who got the attention more than anybody was the AAO. And I was standing in the, uh, the hallway 
um, right before uh, uh, watching uh, the thing take place. And the academy came by and the, the head of the, uh, the annual meeting who worked for the academy, a non-physician, uh, was standing there with his entourage. And he was looking at not only the 1,100 people that were in the room watching this, but he pointed out the exhibit floor and all of the money that was on the exhibit floor. And more importantly, he pointed to my coat check area where all of the bags were packed for people who checked their bags because they were flying out that afternoon. So they had come for the two days of my meeting and then were going home. And uh, it, it should have gotten their attention because that was a time when the academy didn't really pay a lot of attention to subspecialists. And yet 80% of the teachers at the academy were subspecialists. So they were doing all the teaching, but it was geared really for the general ophthalmologist. And uh, so they, they said, no, we can't allow this and we're gonna take it over. And uh, there was a, a push to uh, to still do it. And we could have done it, you know, at O'Hare where the Academy wouldn't have prevented us from uh, doing it there. And there was other places we could have done it. But at, at that point, it, was, it wasn't worth the battle. You know, the, the, the purpose was we needed education once a year for the subspecialist in a way that was real down and dirty, but orchestrated. Okay, not uh, you know a free abstracts like uh, the annual meeting of the societies would do. This was something that that is, is an update. You know, it's the cliff notes of of retina needed to be there once a year, and it should have been the academy. So we we started a, a you know a, a series of of meetings, and and uh, and that's when the subspecialty day was born, uh, and they decided. To, and one of the things we said is, well, let's shorten the annual meeting. Uh, a day and let's make it and let's you know let's not only do retina let's do everything so that's how we were instrumental in helping gear, gear them through that and they're actually changing it again the academy is going to get even another day shorter next year um, and so uh, again I and again the things that put smiles on my face John um, you know I mentioned seeing the PAT survey taking the PAT survey seeing the written ties magazine watching the film festival all these little, little things but, but the joy of going to subspecialty day and seeing, you know, how, how that's happened and how it changed and how it came from, uh, you know, a, a fun meeting that almost put my partner in the hospital. He was so worried about it. Um, but uh, it, it, was a, it was a fun evolution to see it. You know, speaking of Academy, I will never forget that 2005 meeting in New Orleans. And I was in that room. It was my first academy as a retina specialist. And I was in that room when you gave that infamous talk. We had, it was, things were so contentious at the time between Genentech and retina specialists. It was in tribute to what the society was doing. The society had stepped to the plate and had an Avastin workforce to try to continue to get access for the, the drug. And Genentech um, really knew that they had blown it. And hey, look, you know, business is business. They, they looked at this, this threat and there was more than a few dollars on the table here. You know, they had already invested an enormous amount of money in developing uh, Lucentis. And 
they had done it very honestly. They had they had felt uh, with their work on Herceptin that Avastin wasn't going to work, and um, and then when it turned out that it was, and they couldn't reel back, they really felt that they wanted to try to uh, put some roadblocks there. And uh, and actually, right before that uh, academy meeting, if you remember, they had actually officially stopped access. They were not going to sell it to compounding pharmacies. And, and we stepped to the plate for that. And uh, Susan Desmond uh, Hillman uh, was the CEO of Genentech at that point. And she was an oncologist uh, by trade. And, and she was invited to give her side. She knew she was, uh, at least she thought she knew, she was stepping into the lion's den uh, to give her presentation, but maybe not to the extent uh, that as it turned out, but, but people were, were upset. Uh, and uh, uh, the room was packed. There was uh, at least 5,000 or more people in the room uh, wanting to hear Genentech's side of it. And uh, 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 because I was a president of society and the head of the Avastin task force, uh, I got the draw uh, uh, to, to speak, speak it. And actually Dave Williams, actually, I should say was the head of the, of the, the task force, but I was the one who was, was asked to debate, if you will, uh, uh, the CEO. And, uh, I pointed out a whole series of things that Genentech was doing, um, uh, that was uh, building this distrust between, uh, uh, ophthalmology and, uh, their, their, uh, company. And I turned to her and I, I was showing a, in PowerPoint, the wall being built brick by brick, higher and higher and higher. And with Genentech on one side and, and ophthalmology on the other. And I turned, pointed to her and turned right to her as she was about to take the podium. And I said, tear down this wall. It's your job to do this. And uh, uh, it's the only standing ovation I ever got as a speaker. That was the, the voice of their anger and people leapt to their feet, cheering. Um, and uh, it took a long time for the cheers to subside as she stood there waiting to speak and tried to, to, to get out of it. Um, but uh, she realized that it, that it wasn't happening. So that was the end of November. And they very soon after the meeting came to the uh, ASRS, uh, not to the Academy, but they came to the ASRS and said, okay, let's, let's meet, let's talk this over. And he was the head of the Senate subcommittee on aging and Senator Cole uh, got involved in this. And uh, he sent a, a, a subpoena to Genentech saying, you know, you know, you're gonna come in before the US Senate and explain this too, right after that meeting. Um, I got a subpoena for my PowerPoint but I sent that to them. I talked with Senator Cole about it. And then uh, uh, right after that, uh, we met with Genentech with a, uh, a special thing. And, and it was actually a, a, a great meeting because we, we said, look, no one's wanting to, uh, to crucify you guys. You guys are a phenomenal company. Look at the wonderment of what you created. You created Avastin, you created Lucentis. You're doing all this great stuff. We just need to figure out uh, how, to, how to do this. And, uh, and then they, uh, it was right before Christmas is when they uh, came out with the letter that was actually sent out by the ASRS uh, to everybody uh, saying that, you know, 
uh, we've met with Genentech and Genentech is, and tried to, to tell them correctly that Genentech, you know, don't uh, uh, vilify these people, don't uh, uh, demonize them. They're, they're really, they're giving us great tools and let's just put this behind us. And, and you know, years later, maybe the young people don't realize the, that fight and how contentious it got. And, and they're still doing great stuff. So, and they, and they spur other people and other companies to do great stuff. And that's why, again, it's the same thing. We need these people we, and they need us. And uh, we just need to make sure we're not at each other's throat. You know, I think about that talk and just how powerful that was and, and how that really not only brought together retina specialists in one unified way, to fight for Avastin, but it changed Genentech as a company. I think that's when Genentech finally woke up and said, wait a second, we've got to work with these people. And Avastin and Lucentis can coexist, you know, and, and patients can be made better if we just back off and let this happen and let it play out. And, and even I enjoyed working with them. I never really was a, a, a speaker for them, but the, the uh, um, you know, there's, if there's one person who was on their list, <laughs> it was me. And uh, just because of that and, and leading the, the company, we had other ideas uh, that were ready to go at that meeting that would would even been worse than my talk uh, that thankfully we didn't get uh, involved with, but all sorts of stuff we were going to do uh, that we were on a quest to win. And there was no question that we were going to do that. But um uh, but you know, Genentech realized, look, everybody's entitled to make a mistake, and uh, and there's a lot of money there, and uh, I, I understand it. So, but well, you're right; they they really did understand it, and again, driven by great people. But soon thereafter, Tony Adamus uh, was uh, got involved with the company. Tony is a, a, a great guy, both scientifically but ethically too, and and uh, and he understands, uh, uh, you know the the need to have a symbiotic relationship with your consumer base. A hundred percent. You know, you've developed this passion for the history of the retina and, and our profession, and you've kind of carried that torch. Um, your talk on the history of retina is the gold standard. What is it about the history that makes you want, what makes you so passionate about that and telling that story and who's going to carry that torch Kirk when you're gone? The statement, if, if you don't know history, you're damned to uh, uh, repeat it. And uh, it gives you such an appreciation for uh, your craft and uh, how you got from point B to uh, point A to point B. Uh, little things like, um, you know, I, I love telling, asking medical students how they treated diabetic retinopathy at the turn of the century. And it's a trick question because diabetic retinopathy didn't exist at the turn of the century, because everybody who got diabetes died before they could develop retinopathy. So diabetic retinopathy was a new disease. And if you look at journals and reports, this new disease started being described uh, within five to 10 years after Banting and Best uh, invented insulin. And what was the first thing that they blamed when they saw all of this unusual vasculopathy developing, they blamed insulin. He said, well, insulin's the cause of this, not the, the fact that people are just living longer and developing this. So again, it, 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 it shocks you into thinking 
that nothing is in uh, the stuff is not intuitive and it just just didn't happen this way and uh it's just it's so marvelous to learn those kinds of stories um to get an appreciation for it it also allows you to build on it and and uh, learn to develop new things and some things i guess it's just the romantic in me that it feels that we should remember people um uh, in the past several cycles i've asked my fellows as they come in who robert mockamer was and they don't know and uh and that hurts and, and then for me to ask other names in the, the next tier who who uh, uh jules gonan was um or who carl lidner was so carl lidner was uh and, and a contemporary with gonan was actually developed more of the of our profession than gonan um, but and how did i learn that i read i read an oral history by uh, 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 Dorman Pichel, uh, who was the chair at UCSF for many years. And uh, he had the Pichel pins that would impale in the eye with diathermy to treat retinal detachments that way. And it's a wonderful, uh, you can read it in one night, uh, published by the Academy, it's online for free. But he, when he, he tells a story of how he would go over and, and, and was in Gonan's living room, watching him, um, do his surgery and what actually did Gonan do um, to hear from Pichelle's uh, voice as he's telling you this is just I, I just get shivers with that um, and, and so that's why I love to share that with people and, and you're right because history should be just a uh, recounting of facts and in fact um, there's facts in there but they usually are interpreted uh, in the mind of the person who's telling you the story. And there may be a lot of embellishment. There may be things that are downright incorrect in there. Um, so you want to try and make it as correct as you can. And we've, we've lost some wonderful people uh, of late. You know, Harvey Linkoff is no longer with us. Um, uh, you know, George Hilton, Robert Mockimer, um, you know, and, and, and more and more people who, who gave us our tools and our way of thought and our instruments and things are not going to be around and, and it's nice to be able to catalog that so we're on a, a, a wonderful project again that, that john pollock is the the, the main driver uh, behind we're we're creating a a, a whole new section within the, the asrs um, uh, of not only doing oral histories uh, but actually histories of, of different techniques vitrectomy buckling things like that, and people who lived through the evolution uh, were developing a museum. Um, all these instruments are just going to get thrown out in dumpsters, you know. Thank, thankfully, we're trying to salvage some um, and keep them so that we'll have a traveling uh, 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 shows of, of different instruments that we can bring to meetings so, so the people can see what, what a, a, a tractor looked like in 1972. Uh, or I actually found uh, uh, a, uh, a Paclin cautery on eBay uh, from Belgium uh, that I donated to the museum, which is exactly what Gonan used. Uh, Gonan's instruments actually don't even exist anymore, but uh, in his museum uh, in Lucerne, uh, uh, Switzerland, they have uh, a Paclin cautery, and I found one on eBay. So again, I, I was just like a kid in a candy shop when I saw this on eBay that I, I bought for uh, like $150. Um, and it's it's like the very first retinal surgery instrument or procedure that worked. Um, I mean, it's so much fun to see that. 
So you, you, you got to, and, and it has to be this society. You know, they have to be the custodian of our history and they have to try to get it right. Um, and to try to do it without uh, hurting people because there's some dirt in there and there's some bad things that happened and people stealing ideas and lawsuits and all that kind of stuff. But you know, it is what it is and you gotta put it down and, and let history just uh, make sure that it's correct. I'll tell you one little story that uh, was going to be my one of my tickets to heaven is uh, how gases got FDA approved. Um, you know, when when we were using gases, SF6 and C3F8 and things, and uh, they were industrial gases. They're really inexpensive. You could buy them in these giant tanks that would last forever. Um, and uh, SF6, for example, was sold by the ton in the electronics industry as a, they call it an electrical blanket, because when you would make microchips or in transformers and things, you needed to put an atmosphere in there that wouldn't corrode or oxidize these delicate uh, um, uh, workings. So uh, SF6 was a common thing to, to do it. So you could buy uh, this stuff. And there was a time... Um, when you, we lost access to SF6 and C3F8, uh, the PCR company in Gainesville, Florida, was well, had nothing to do with the PCR uh, genetics test, but the, uh, this is the name of their company. They were one of the biggest suppliers that we bought gases from. And they were an industrial company. They did not uh, uh, sell medical grade things, but that's where everybody bought their gases. And uh, there was a woman who sued the PCR company claiming that she got hepatitis from the SF6 that was injected into her eye. And they, they had to defend this lawsuit that was ultimately dropped, but the, they said, look, we're not a medical company. We have, don't wanna do this. So they sent out a letter to every ophthalmologist saying that they will not sell it to anyone who is a doctor. They won't sell it to a hospital. And people who were buying this had to send them uh, an affidavit saying that they will not inject it into the human or animal eye. Okay, they got animals covered too. So we lost our access to it. And a couple of the other companies like uh, uh, Matheson Gas and a couple of others, they all followed suit with PCR. So now I had a, uh, a tank of these in the operating room that I had bought, just like everybody else. And uh, one of my... Uh, uh, colleagues who was not in my group, but was operating at my private hospital, um, wanted to use my SF6. And the scrub nurse uh, called me uh, in the office and said, Dr. So-and-so wants to use your gas. Is that okay? And uh, I didn't know how much gas was left in the tank. I couldn't buy it anymore. Um, I didn't know if he was going to know how to open it or just leave it open at the end of the day. And I, I felt bad, but I said, look, I, I really can't allow it. I'm so really sorry, but you're gonna have to tell him that I'm gonna decline. So then two days later, I get a call from the president of the hospital saying that he was informed that I was using a non-FDA approved gas in the hospital and what am I doing? And I'm, I'm holding the hospital at jeopardy. So he turned me in uh, because he was angry. So. He, I explained the whole situation. He said, well, Kirk, look, why don't you do an IRB thing? We'll just let you do it. So then over a weekend, I wrote the IRB uh, study. And I had, uh, I don't know, 100 uh, references and had this 30-page 
paper that I'd written, uh, uh, you know, in a typical PACO way, uh, being over the top, where I had this big document that uh, um, on, on why gases would still be allowed. And when I did it, I said, well, this is still stupid. I mean, we got to get the gases. And I was on a committee called the uh, uh, New Device Committee at that point. I was just early on. I was, it was long before I was president. And uh, uh, I used my role in that committee to see if we could find somebody. So I sought out Scott Medical, who was providing gases or was about to provide the gases for the silicone oil study. They were an anesthesia company. And uh, uh, so they... Uh, purified the C3F8 and SF6 for the study, but they had no intention of selling it or marketing this. They thought it was going to be a big deal and that kind of stuff. And so I uh, remember meeting with the president of the company um, at the Algonquin Hotel in New York. I flew to New York on my uh, dime to meet with the guy. Um, and uh, I tried to convince him and I handed him my paper. And I says, look, I've talked with the FDA they're not going to require a study. And he says, here's the, the PMA application. All you got to do is fill in the blanks and the, you can market this. And I told him there's a, there's a market here. So he kind of reluctantly agreed to do it. And, uh, and, then, and then he quit. And I had to start over with another CEO. And then I actually started over with a, a third CEO um, and finally got them all through it. I wrote the package insert for them with Gary Abrams. Gary and I did it. Um, we tried to get them to to uh, to have it for vitreous uh, use too, but if you look at the the original package insert back then, they had it approved for pneumatic retinopexy, um, and it was contraindicated for use in vitreous surgery, which was weird. So we were using it off label in the operating room, and even when it was presented to the FDA. They said, why did you do it this way? He said, we'd have let, given you the package approval for everything if you just did it that way. And I forget the name of the person at the FDA. And it wasn't, it wasn't Dr. Chambers. So it wasn't Wiley was, uh, because he was more on the drug side. But and this was uh, approved as a device, interestingly, uh, because it wasn't metabolized in the body and it, it, it left the body uh, unchanged. So it was on the device side of things. They don't do it that way anymore. But the, at that time, it was. And I said, well, I tried to tell Scott not to, to do it that way, but I was afraid I was going to lose him. So that's the way yeah. it, it turned out. So, um, but all this happened at lightning speed. So within a month of me being turned in, we had the FDA approval for it. Wow. And uh, um, I know maybe a couple months because I ran through a couple of CEOs. But um, uh, the end of the story was as soon as it was FDA approved, I get a phone call from the medical staff office again, saying that there was a doctor on staff who wanted to know where to buy it because they heard that you, it was now FDA approved. So I wish I could say I wore a halo at that moment, but I didn't. Yeah. And I told him, tell Dr. So-and-so it's a cold day in hell if I'm going to tell him where to buy it. Yeah. Um, I just, I was so upset. And maybe I've softened since then. Maybe I would have told them where to get it. But it, it, that, that little historical vignette is kind of fun. And it, it shows that it's the, uh, the anger of one competitor to another that actually facilitated uh, our access to uh, the gas. And again, I, I, I love to tell it because it really is my ticket to heaven because I didn't get a dime for any of that day. Scott Medical didn't pay me for doing anything, for consulting with him. Um, I just wanted to get it done. 
and it was really my job on the then vitreous society to to get it out and, and get us uh, to it. So um, and it was kind of proving myself to the board that um, uh, I was able to do some things positively for the society. Well, Kirk, I hope that the next time anybody goes to ASRS, fills out a PATH survey, picks up a retina times, or uses gas that they think in some way this is in part thanks to Kirk Paco. You know, John, it's, it's nice to hear you say that. It is in no way why I did any of that. Yeah. And, uh, and I mean, and it's, it's not just um, for me to say it as part of a blog or interview here. Truly, is, I, it's not why I did it. And uh, same way I feel about education. You know, if someone asks me if they want to borrow a slide from my talk, I always refuse. And I say, the only way you're going to get us here, let me give you the whole talk. And uh, uh, you'll get everything. And please use it. And some people always want to, you know, say, you know, I, I'm not going to give it to you because you got to credit me for it. You know, education is meant to be shared. These things are meant to be shared. And, and my, uh, my joy in it and my thanks is, like I've told you, when, when I go see how those things have grown and evolved, that's all I need. Wonderful. Kirk, listen, I so appreciate you coming on being our first guest on this. You set the bar incredibly high, as, as you have in so many different ways. But thank you so much for joining us tonight. And uh, I look forward to seeing you at many, many more meetings. A, a meeting without you at it. I hope you keep presenting at these meetings, even though you're retired. Because a meeting without you is a meeting that's just missing something. Oh, you're sweet to say that. As long as I got a breath, John, I'm, I'm going to be there. And, and not only presenting, but learning. I, you know... It is the joy of learning things, even though I'm, I may not actually put it into clinical practice. I may teach it to someone in some capacity in the future. And if that doesn't happen, just the fact that I learned something that day is just makes it a, a worthwhile day. Fantastic. Thanks, Kurt. Thanks, John. I want to thank you so much for listening to On the Shoulders of Giants, interviews with luminaries in retina. This interview with Dr. Kirk Paco has been so meaningful and impactful. 